Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today's guest is someone who is on fire for inspiring women to see and meet their potential. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, USA Today, and the Washington Post, and she is an author, keynote speaker, and blogger who focuses on career and lifestyle issues for working women. She's also the Vice President of Marketing for Train Technologies, a global climate technology company, where she leads branding and marketing for the commercial business. We're excited to welcome Portia Mount. Portia, great to see you today. Welcome to the Take Command podcast. Joe, it's so great to be here with you today. Thank you. So Portia, I've been really looking forward to our conversation. And it's interesting to me because you are a vice president of marketing for a Fortune 500 company by day, and yet you do so many other things. You've got (laughs) books, Hustles, Uh, lots of side hustles. Lots of side hustles. I really want to get into, I mean, even how you balance all those things. There's so many different things. But before we do, tell us about you, Portia. You know, how'd you get to where you are? A little bit about your background. Yeah. So I did not start out as a marketer. And it's interesting because when I think about my career trajectory, and if you were to look at the roles that I've had, say, just from the start of my career to where I am now, they probably don't make a ton of sense. But then when I think about the skills I've been leveraging throughout the life of my career, I think there is a red thread. My very first job was as a fundraiser for legal aid. I sort of stumbled into that role out of grad school. I didn't really know what I was going to do. I had this master's degree in anthropology, which a lot of people think, what the heck does that mean? I got hired as a fundraiser and pretty quickly in that job, I was making $25,000 a year. I was 24 years old and my job was to write grants for legal aid for people who needed legal representation who could not afford it. And what became really clear to me early on was that a lot of funders and individual donors and companies didn't know what legal aid did. And a lot of people thought, why would we pay for legal representation for poor people? When in reality, legal aid does amazing things like consumer protection and housing discrimination law and family law, really incredible things. And it became clear to me that I didn't just need to write grants. I needed to tell people, in this case, I was living in Kansas City, Missouri, what legal aid was all about. So not having any public relations experience or marketing experience, I started calling up reporters and inviting them to the legal aid offices and saying, hey, I really want you to know about this amazing organization. And that was sort of the catalyst for me thinking about, huh, I'm actually pretty good at this. Identifying a core audience, really thinking about what is it that is important to tell that audience and then telling a story, if you will. So that was the beginning of my career. I had some stops along the way and some really big public relations firms where, again, I was then working with big corporate clients, working on tough, tough issues, crisis management, things like bankruptcies, product failures. And again, the thread that I think about is understanding the 
core issue, really understanding who that issue affected and then thinking about how to speak to them, tell stories or explain a difficult situation in really simple terms. And that was really energizing for me to be able to do that. So I stayed in public relations for a few years and made my way towards the marketing career that I have today. It's interesting. It sounds like it was very iterative though. You know, you started in one thing and then you just kind of found yourself going in the direction. You found something you were good at and passionate about where you can make a difference. And then you kind of followed that from there. 100%, Joe. And I really love that you say iterative because I think sometimes people think, oh, I have to pick this one career and then stick with it. And what I've learned both just in my own career, but also now speaking to a lot of, especially women who have been successful is generally it's not someone targeting a job or title. Obviously that can happen, but it's really more about a series of experiences. And in my case, not only was it a series of experiences, it was the fact that every experience I was learning more and more. I was learning, I was having new experiences and I was working with interesting people who were teaching me something that I didn't know. And those things together really sparked my interest and kept me moving. And I really went where there was opportunity, but also where my interest took me as well and where I thought I could make an impact. It's interesting though, because you seemed very open. You know, many times we could be very linear in my career thinking, you know, I got to go from this to this, this, you know, and am I doing the right thing and so forth? But it sounds like you were really just more following where you saw the opportunity. You were kind of getting off one track and going on a different one. I do think that plays a part. And there is some strategy involved too, right? Because if you're too loose, then you can end up staying in place. And every organization that I ended up in, for example, when I got to the agency world, went to New York and went to work for a really large global firm. And it became clear to me that there were very specific accounts that were important for career growth. And so I really made it a point once I understood how the company worked to say, you know, I think I want to work in the public affairs practice because it is going to give me experience with these types of really big crisis clients. And I sort of straddled the corporate and financial practices because I wanted to learn how to do really hard problem solving work. So there's a little bit of strategy, but also the flexibility that if something came along that wasn't in the quote plan, I had to be willing to jump off. And I think it's really important because you miss important opportunities if you hold to your plan too tightly. So hold the plan lightly has been my philosophy. And so far it's worked. Well, it sounds like something that has worked for you. You've advanced throughout your career. You're currently vice president. You've mentioned books and so forth, but it's interesting too, because many of the most successful people I've talked to and great leaders will say the same thing, you know, that they maintain this kind of open mindset about what could approach, what they could approach, what could approach them, what the opportunities would be. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think connected to that is not just the opportunities, but the relationships you build along the way. And so many of the opportunities that have come before me haven't been because I've been looking for a job per se, but it's because someone in my network, I've gotten to know them. And in the course of that relationship, they've said, hey, there's this really amazing opportunity here. Would you consider it? And also being willing to help other people too. I've been really privileged to work with just some incredible professionals, which has broadened my network. So the opportunities have always seemed to find me versus me having to go out and look for them. 
because one, I've been flexible and two, I've been building relationships and nurturing those relationships along the way. So networking is something I know a lot of people are uncomfortable about. They don't know how to do it. it, You know, what insights have you had or what might you share about networking and building your network? How have you done that? Yeah. And it's so interesting, Joe, because of course this pandemic, I think we all thought was going to be six months and we're now going into maybe the third year has upended that. But I think there's a few things, regardless of what time we live in that hold true, that networking is really about relationships and it's about connection. What I love about the time that we're in now is it used to be, you had to maybe go out to an event or just people in some ways were less accessible because you had to maybe make a plan to go somewhere. And what I love about this time now is the ability to reach out to people, maybe that, you know, you read an article they wrote and you can drop them a note in LinkedIn and reach out and connect. I think what's really important though, is that networking or relationship building is a two-way process. And it's not about waiting for someone to give you something, but it's a back and forth exchange that happens over time. And that's really the beauty of them building these relationships and sometimes friendships over time. It's getting to know people. And it's also really saying, how can I help you? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, people will think sometimes that networking, kind of this negative side of networking, if there's a negative connotation, it's like just people in a room trying to get something from somebody else. Smarmy, right. (laughs) Yeah, but but it's really the opposite, isn't it? hundred percent. Let me give you a super quick example. I found this really interesting HBR article on allyship and I saw it, I put it on Twitter. It so happened that the authors, Dave Smith and Brad Johnson said, Hey, we wrote this article. Let us know if you're interested in it. I'm sure we looked at each other's profiles and I saw who they were and I was like, Oh, huh, that's interesting. So I said, actually, I would like to talk to you, reached out to them on Twitter. Long story short, went to their website and found there was a very deep mutual connection crazy and yet so common. And that started a really terrific dialogue and picking up a copy of their book, Good Guys, and talking about how we might engage them in some of our allyship work at Train Technology. So that's the kind of thing that you have to make space for in your life, which is really genuine connection and curiosity and the willingness to connect. You said something else that just really strikes me because I know you've written about this and you've talked about this. It's intentionality. You talk about yes. time. And some of these things, we're so busy. We've got so many other responsibilities. But what I hear you saying is, hey, look, you got to make time. You got to be intentional because if you don't, it's just not going to happen by itself. Right. And I think when people think about, oh, time, you don't have to do three hours a week. You could say, I want to set aside one hour a week to go on LinkedIn and one comment on people's posts that I've had a chance to meet and maybe send an article that I thought would be of interest to someone that's in my network and maybe just reach out to someone I hadn't spoken to in a while to send them a text, send them a chat and say, Hey, how are you doing? I try to put in an hour a week on my calendar to do that as well as write letters. I love handwritten letters. I love getting them. I love sending them. And so I try to send thank you notes, birthday cards. And so I try to set aside an hour a week to do that. And I feel like, especially now, people crave authentic connection. And so it's fun. And I think it puts good vibes in the universe. (laughs) I'm a Californian, so I can say that. I'm born and raised in California, but I believe in putting positive energy into the universe. And I think that's one of the ways to do that. 
Well, who doesn't like positive energy? And who doesn't like getting a nice handwritten note? They're so rare. So rare. So rare. So when we get them, it's like, wow, that was really nice. It makes you feel special. And like you said, people crave kind of that connection and feeling appreciated and that type of thing. And it's such a nice thing. I could speak for hours about my love of stationery and paper, Joe, but I'm not going to, but I do really love the connection that a letter, a birthday card. Usually I send New Year's cards out. I did not do it this year. My family will do it next year. Some people do the annual letters that they put in a holiday cards. I think all of those are very small ways to create connection, but it doesn't have to be a card or a handwritten letter. It could be just an email. Hey, I was thinking about you because I read a book that reminded me of a conversation that we had. I think there are big and small ways to do it. I think you do it in a way that feels really natural, but there's just so many interconnections across all of us. It is so true. And if I think about my own life, there are probably five people at different points in my life just really were pivotal in terms of just going to different roles, different key places. Those relationships have just been so important. All relationships. You can't understate how important those are. I totally agree. And it's something I continue to work at. I am a busy mom. I have two little kids. So I know as a working mom, it's hard. Or if you're a working parent, it is hard to fit that in. And so I don't do it 100% perfectly every week, but I make an effort most of the time. So you mentioned your two kids. You've got a blog that's designed for parents, for moms and that type of thing. But I think about all the things that are on your plate between a very senior role in a major company between, you know, the blog and the podcast and the book and the TEDx talks and speaking. What is your secret? What types of things might you offer to all of us around balance? Because, you know, you've got good balance. So I think a couple of things, and I'm glad you mentioned the book and the speaking. And then of course there's my work as an executive in my mind, Joe, all of these things are interrelated. So one of the tricks I think to, Having multiple streams of work, let's call it, is there has to be a red thread that goes through all of them. So for example, I'm trained as an executive coach. I do a little bit of coaching on the side, but most of the coaching I do is internal to my team. I've got a really big team of about 62 people. I do a lot of writing and speaking on women's leadership, but that's very much tied into the work I do also at Train Technologies. It feeds that work because I'm global co-chair of the women's ERG. So it's all interconnected. If I were doing what I were doing and then trying to, I'm making this up, run a tech startup, that's very much outside my wheel. And so the trick is to do things that give you energy, that tap into a core passion that you have, and that can help feed your other activities. At least that's what's worked for me. And then of course, not all of these things are going full throttle at the same time. There are days or weeks or months where I'm really focused on work and there's very little outside writing or speaking I'm doing because I'm just trying to move through some big initiatives I have. And then other times that slows down a little bit. My podcast, for example, is something I record on a specific day on a Friday in a very condensed time frame over like four weeks, literally. And so it's very, very compressed. So that time management piece and thinking about how to block time out to do the things that I love to do. And then also being realistic about what are my priorities and what can I actually accomplish are really key. I do have young kids. 
I go to basketball games and Taekwondo matches. And so those things are important to me, but there are also other things that I don't do. I believe in outsourcing, whether you're a working mom or working dad, Instacart is my friend. (laughs) I schedule a lot of things. A lot of my life is automated. My finances are automated. And so there's a lot of things that where people might spend a lot of time every week. My biggest piece of advice is automate as much of your life as you can. That's sort of point one. Point two is if you can afford it, outsource all non-value added activities. For example, I have someone who comes and helps clean my house. She only comes twice a month and my kids are responsible for cleaning their own rooms, but twice a month, deep clean. And the rest of the time, we keep a relatively tidy home for someone who has a six and a 12 year old. What I love is this notion of outsourcing. And it's not easy. I know as someone who's struggled with that in the past, because I've said, I'm going to do this myself, but you get to the point where we can't do everything. And why not, if we can you know, outsource certain things, whether it's Instacart or whatever the case might be, I get the feeling that you're forgiving with yourself. You talked about being realistic. I know sometimes we can put such pressure on ourselves to do everything and burn ourselves out. Oh, yes. But the mindset that you just talked about is a great way to avoid that kind of burnout, right? We just say, look, I'm going to do what I can do. I'm going to do the best that I can. Here's what I'm going to do it. It seems like that's something that helps you kind of maintain some positive mental health too. I think that's right. And I think there's a couple of things and I'm not going to be able to properly credit the person who came up with this about the glass balls and the rubber balls, and you're juggling those balls. And the goal is to not drop the glass balls. The glass balls, for example, are caring for my children. There's very few glass balls that I'm juggling, but those that are related to my family tend to be the ones that I really focus on keeping up in the air. And there are other balls. Some of those might be, for example, through my volunteer activities, which I don't do a lot of, to be candid. I have a couple of things that I love to do and that is it. And if those drop, it's not the end of the world. That is really, again, thinking about how do I put my time and attention on the people and things that are of most value and then I'm an overachiever. I always want to do my best on everything, but I've just learned that it's not possible to do everything perfectly. And even parenting, for example, is not done perfectly. We get it wrong. We get things wrong. So how do we make sure that we can forgive ourselves, learn the lesson and move on? And by the way, our children are watching us. They are watching us all the time, how we respond to stress, how we deal with setbacks, and then they are going to follow suit. So I'm hyper-conscious now, especially since I'm not commuting as much as I used to, that my children are really watching what I'm doing and they'll make their own decisions about how they live their lives when they become adults. It's something that is great to remind ourselves of. I mean, I've got six kids. I will say that the single hardest job I've ever had is being a parent. And I remember thinking- So hard. Before before we had our first child, I remember thinking, oh, it's going to be easy. It's hard, but you're right, Portia, that you know, we can lose sight that our kids are watching. They are looking at what we do, not just what we say, and how important it is to set a really good example and really to give affirmation and love and support, as well as discipline in terms of direction where they need it. Otherwise, my kids would be playing, you know, video games all day long. Mine too. And, you know, super funny story because children really will hold a mirror up to your own behavior. One day, my son was walking around with a cup of coffee and he was pacing really quickly throughout the house and saying, clean this up, clean that up, pick this up. What are you still doing here? Why is your backpack on the floor? And I said, what are you doing, Gideon? And he said, 
this is how you act, mommy. And I thought, oh my gosh, do I really sound like that? And he said, you do. And I thought, oh my goodness, I need to calm down. <laughs> well, but, it's painful, true, but sometimes the kids give us a hard time. I mean, they I, do, I, I, totally. Like, you know, <laughs> it was funny and a little poignant. <laughs> So going back to all these different things that you're doing, one of the things I was going to ask you coming into this podcast is what fuels you, what drives you to do all the different things that you're doing? And I heard you talk about things that give you good energy and core passion. Having said that, I still kind of have that question. So what drives you? Because you don't have to do all these things. You can still fuel your core passion, but you take all these different things on. So yeah, I think there's a few things. So one is if I think about professionally, I love marketing. I love thinking about really compelling ways to connect. There's that word again, connect with customers in unique and novel ways to help them solve their problems. And that fuels my passion. I would also say in every role that I've had, including the one that I have now, there's always been a transformation piece of this. I really love solving tough organizational problems or tough business problems. I get a lot of energy around problem solving, which I get to do a piece of as a marketing leader. But then I also do a piece of this as a member of, of my business's leadership team and more broadly as a senior executive in the company. So I get a ton of energy of working cross-functionally to solve these wicked problems. And then outside of that, I have found that I get more white space and sort of creative energy from doing things that are not directly related to work. I'm a believer that if you spend all of your time 24 seven thinking about your job, it is much harder to have an impact because you can't get out of the weeds to think more expansively about what the alternatives might be visioning for the future. So I do a lot of reading that has nothing to do with marketing and nothing to do with business. I do a lot of reading in the sciences and fiction and I'm writing and I'm speaking and this helps me process. And then I come back to my work, my day job, and I have all these fresh insights that I can weave in from these passions that I have outside of work. Yeah, it's really the value of perspective. And it's hard, I think, too, working from home. It's so easy to be myopic in our jobs and just to be working all the time. But if we pull ourselves back, like you said, Portia, and try to even just think we want to be strategic and we can't be when we're just constantly in the weeds. But even getting different perspectives, reading different things can help us. That's right. And back to the first part of our conversation about the network, I used to not be very good at this and I'm really working on getting better at it is when I'm stuck on a problem. I will think about who's in my network and think, you know what, let me just reach out to them and say, this is what I'm dealing with. What would you do? And one, I love it when people reach out to me to do that because sometimes it's a nice break from what I'm thinking about. And two, you get these really great perspectives and you're like, oh, wow, I never thought about it that way. It's a great connection point, but also you get a unique perspective on a problem that you're trying to solve that perhaps you hadn't considered. Completely agree. And why reinvent the wheel? Sometimes we can get great advice from other people. And it's like, oh my gosh, we can build on that. So let me ask you about the book. You've played leadership roles in a lot of significant organizations, and you've studied the glass ceiling, so to speak. You wrote, kick some glass. 
What insights did you gain in that process of writing that book about female leaders and how they can break through the glass ceiling? That was such a great 18 months of giving birth to that book, if you will, with my co-author, Jennifer Martineau. And we interviewed so many women as well as really looked at the literature around why and how women succeed. And I think there's a handful of things that really stood out for me and that continue to be very resonant as I think about women leaders. And so one is, I would say most, not all, women tend to ground their leadership in their core values. And those values may not necessarily be explicitly stated, but they're very frequently, most often implicitly stated. And we pressure tested this idea over probably 50 or 60 interviews. And even now, as I'm out speaking and sharing around how do you and why we anchor the work that we do in our core values is so central to who we are as leaders. So that's sort of one. Two, and this is an anchor concept in the book, which is around intention. There was not a woman that I spoke to who said, I set out to become a chief executive officer or a chief HR officer or a CFO. To a woman, they said, I learned what I was really good at. And I learned where I could make an impact. I also understood what was really important to me, what was fundamental to who I am as an individual. And I put those things together and I set off on a course to make an impact. And the fact that it led me to become CEO is almost incidental to the fact that I was driven by this need for impact, anchored in my core values. And I set this intention around where I wanted to go. And that was very profound to me. And when I speak to younger women who are earlier in their careers, it continues to resonate deeply. And I guess the final sort of thought on that, Joe, is what I love about that idea too, is it takes the pressure off to have it all figured out right now. I think when you're working with super high achieving people, they think, oh, I need to have this 10 year plan and I'm going to do this in year one and this and by year five, I'm going to be at this level and by year seven, I'm going to be here. And the reality is that's just not life. Life doesn't work that way. And I just think this is a much saner way to think about careers and it creates opportunities for serendipity and for moments that are not on your plan, because that's where some of the best career moments are. And then the other piece that I, we learned a lot was just around balancing work and family. And every woman that I spoke to had her own way of doing it. There was definitely no blueprint. No one said, oh, if you have a nanny and a stay-at-home husband and you work 70 hours a week, you will become CEO. Some women had stay-at-home husbands. Others had husbands who have power careers. But what they did understand, and I think this is a super important lesson, is early in their relationships, they figured out with their partner how they were going to approach this thing called life. They had really intentional conversations of, do we want to have kids? If we have kids, who's going to raise them? Whose career is going to be on bright? Whose career is going to be on dark? So to sum that piece up, and I've talked about this in other forums, is who you choose as a life partner is one of the most consequential career decisions you will make. 
by the way, I had no idea about that. I didn't think about this at all when I got married. My husband's amazing, by the way, but I did not consider that at all. And I think it's a really important consideration. And the women that I've seen be incredibly successful have been very intentional around that as well. But it makes a lot of sense. They say that 95% of our happiness relates to the person that we are married to or a partner or whatever the case might be, but we're committed to. And that goes into everything. We don't achieve things by ourselves, no matter who we are. It's always in partnership or in connection with somebody else. So we are always connected to other people in some form or fashion. Well, we are. And I think now we're having more conversations around this idea of emotional labor and unpaid labor. And the fact that particularly, and there's really good data around this, is that women, even in very senior roles, tend to bear the lion's share of emotional labor, household labor. So that's everything from, think about it, like scheduling doctor's appointments, the at-home school art project, to planning vacations. These are the kinds of things that add up that really over time can take a lot of time and they take up a lot of mental space. And so I think the couples that can learn to divide and conquer ultimately, I think win or have an agreement about who does what or have healthier relationships. And then that allows you also to be successful in your career as well. It's certainly getting that out in the open and having the conversation, because if that doesn't happen, that creates all kinds of stress points, right? Where people have expectations about things that you should do this and I should do this. If you don't talk about that, work that out up front, that's very divisive. A hundred percent. And Eve Rodsky has written about this at length in her book, Fair Play at Life, which I highly recommend because it's really just that. The fact that men and women often don't talk about these things or couples don't talk about these things and they become festering sores in relationships that bleed over into your professional life, that bleed into your family life, they impact your children. So even though we're talking about careers, what happens at home is essential to your effectiveness as a leader of people at work. Absolutely true. We are holistic. We are who we are, wherever we go. A hundred percent. Speaking of which, one of the things you talked about in your TED talk was this notion of imposter syndrome. We bring who we are wherever we go. And you had a sense, and you talked about a very high percentage of people, leaders go through at different stages, this feeling of being an imposter that I'm not good enough. I'm fooling people and so forth. What was your experience with that personally? I know you talked a little bit about that and you're talking, they'd be great for our listeners to hear that. And more importantly, what insights do you have about how did you overcome that and how do you encourage other people to overcome that? And I'm so glad we're much more willing to talk about the imposter syndrome than maybe we were even, you know, a decade or so ago, but I did experience the imposter syndrome. I was in an expat assignment living in Shanghai, People's Republic of China, working for the PR firm I had started with in New York. And I was sort of dropped into this really just different environment. I think I was one of two Americans and quickly realized that the job that I thought I was going to do was not the job that I was doing. And that I think my first week, one of the clients said to me, look, you seem like you're a really nice person, but we're going to fire you. And I just was completely mortified. And I went into just panic zone, trying to work to save this client. And, you know, long story short, I just felt so unprepared for the new environment, these really fast paced clients. I mean, I thought New York was fast. And then I got to Shanghai 
and things were hyperspeed. I was alone and I increasingly felt like I am out of my league. I am out of my depth. And on the outside, client was getting happier with how the work was going. I remember one night, my phone rang at like 10 o'clock at night. And I was thinking, who is calling me at 10 o'clock at night? And it was our global CEO. And I just thought, what is he doing calling me? I was freaking out. And he said, hey, Portia, it's Chris. I just wanted to see how you were doing. And I heard you're doing good things. And hey, I just want to let you know, if you need any help, you call me. And I remember thinking, why on earth would the global CEO call me? And so that is really what the imposter syndrome will do is it will make you really second guess your competency and your qualifications, even though objectively on paper, you're hundred percent qualified. Yeah. So Portia, how did you overcome that? I mean, here yeah. you see, the CEO calls you to tell you a great job. You'd think that'd be a great affirmation. How did you overcome it? So a couple things, and I will say I did not overcome it immediately in that particular assignment. Listeners who have been expats know there's a whole curve, learning curve to being an expatriate anyway. And so over time, I started to get more comfortable in the environment, develop more relationships, develop more support. I didn't even know I had the imposter syndrome when I was in the middle of it, Joe. But what I learned was a number of things that are really important that I now apply all the time. So one is you do have to tell people you are struggling. You have to tell people you're struggling because most people have gone through some version of this. When I was in China, by the way, actually, I did have a girlfriend who was a corporate attorney working in another company, and she would randomly call me and just say, hey, how are you doing? I haven't heard from you in a while. That helped a lot, but getting support is number one. The other thing that I think is really important is, and this can be in a coaching situation, but it can just be on your own or with someone you trust is taking objective stock of what you actually have done. The reality is companies don't make these huge investments to send people overseas who are not competent, right? That doesn't happen. What I've learned is, is for a person experiencing imposter syndrome, sitting down and saying, Hey, look, look at your LinkedIn profile. Look at your last three reviews. What do you see here? There is data that says that you are exactly who you are. You deserve to be here. You are competent. And then I think the other thing that's really important is recognizing that it's a temporary situation that everyone goes through. I don't know a really successful person, man or woman, who hasn't at some point in their career felt like, I am a phony and everyone is going to find out what a phony I am as soon as I open my mouth in this next meeting. I think we all need to give ourselves some grace. I think people who are overachievers and who are particularly really competitive on top of it can have a hard time admitting when they are struggling. And I think it's really important to cut yourself a break and know that you are good. You do deserve to be here. But by the way, none of us is immune from making mistakes. I say this to young professionals and my team all the time, you will make a mistake. Some of them will be actually pretty bad, but most of them will be recoverable. And guess what? You learn there is data and mistakes and failure and you get to learn. And so that has really helped me personally. And it's also though helped me coach some of the younger team members that I have who are starting to experiencing that because they're getting a lot more responsibility and visibility. Yeah, so much I love of what you said here though, is going to 
give yourself a break. Sometimes we are so hard on ourselves and and we have these expectations for ourselves that just aren't realistic. We think that we're going to be dropped in. I remember as a young lawyer, you're in this and you're learning and everyone has a learning curve. The other thing that really just jumps out is how catastrophic of a career limiter it can be to not ask for help. Oh my gosh. Because often that leads, we can't do it. And that leads to failure or to real mistakes. We manifest the things that we fear if we don't ask for help so often. That's exactly right. And I think it's really important for those of us who are leaders to make sure we impress upon our team. And especially if you've got a team of younger professionals who maybe don't have as much experience, make sure to over-communicate that it's okay to ask for help. Quick story. One of my colleagues posted on Twitter. We do this a lot. We post questions and see how people respond. And the question was, what do you wish you had known in your first job or earlier in your career? And so I reposted that on LinkedIn and the answers were extraordinary. But one of the things that came up over and over was, I wish I had known that I didn't need to know all the answers. So many people said that. And so many people shared, I had so much angst and anxiety early in my career from thinking I had to be the one to figure it all out. And my wish for earlier career people is ask for help. So many people want to help you and see you succeed. Don't suffer alone. Don't stew. Don't ruminate. Ask for help. (laughs) So important. And we can free ourselves of just so much pain and anxiety when we do that. Portia, Let me ask you about leadership. How would you define leadership? If you were to define it in a sentence or two, what does leadership mean to you? Yeah, I think that leadership really is around setting a direction and getting commitment to that direction, right? What I would add to that though is impact. And that I think the best leaders are able to set that direction get alignment and commitment, but also create an impact. What is it that you want your mission to accomplish? And that doesn't mean it has to be solely your mission. It could be the mission of your team, but that impact piece, I think is what changes organizations. It's what solves really intransigent community problems. That to me is where the magic is creating an impact. Well, and especially if that impact can be around where our passion is. And we talk a lot at Dale Carnegie about the mission that we have in the world impacting people's lives. Yes, yes. And, you know, when we have a drive to have an impact and what we have as a team, like teams can be incredibly high performing. Oh, absolutely. And there is nothing better than just a high performing, locked in, zoned in team, a team that's just operating on all cylinders. And I've been super fortunate to be part of, but also lead those kinds of teams. And so I think as a leader, you know, when you have a team like that and you've all galvanized around a very specific mission and the best teams, then they just go, you're not out in front of them. You are working alongside of them. You're coming back together. You're looking at what do we get done? What went well? What didn't work well? You're course correcting. The energy in doing that and watching the teams just sort of take hold themselves. And I think the best teams then almost don't need you after a while because they have figured it out. And then you're just, you have your sleeves rolled up and you're having fun. When you get into that zone, it's amazing. 
it is one of the most fun parts of leadership is when we see other people around us succeeding, when we can support them so that they can yeah. do great things and we can almost step back. It's like, you know, a part of leadership is helping create other leaders and accomplishing great things. So Portia, one thing I know that you know an awful lot about, and I'm really interested in hearing it because this is a real, real problem for me personally, and that's sleep. And you've yes. talked about sleep being the X factor that really, once you learned how to get more sleep, that actually helped you significantly in your career and your life. Tell us what you know. Yes. Uh, what can we learn about how to get a better night's sleep? I love talking about sleep. I could talk about sleep and rest forever. So here's the thing about sleep that most adults need somewhere between seven and 10 hours of sleep at night. Seven to 10? To 10 hours of sleep a night. Most adults, it depends what particular demographic you're in. I aim to get eight hours of sleep a night. So here's the thing we know about sleep. Sleep helps all kinds of brain function. It helps you regulate your hormones. Americans are terrible at sleep and mothers probably have the worst amount of sleep you can might imagine because of child rearing and everything. And so the thing that I learned was this. So one, it is really important to create optimal sleep conditions for yourself. And so I'm very religious about this in my house with my kids and myself, my husband, by the way, I will say has really terrible sleep hygiene. So he sort of does his own thing, but I have my own sleep ritual as do my kids. And so a couple of things. So one, your bedroom should only be used for sleep and sex, nothing else, not eating, not working, nothing, sleep and sex. That's really important. Two is that eliminating outside sources of light is really important because your brain needs to produce melatonin, which is the hormone that helps you get sleepy. And so when you have lights that slows down that production, I do not have any electronics in my room. I don't have a TV. I don't have phones, nothing. My clock is analog. There's no blue light in my room at all. The other thing that we know about sleep is that the optimal temperature is somewhere probably around 66, 67 degrees. I do turn our thermostat down to about 67 degrees, which is very cool, but we have lots of nice warm blankets. Weighted blankets are amazing. They are not for everybody, but I have found that extra little bit of weight helps create a sense of relaxation. The final couple of things is one is the room should be really dark. So I have blackout curtains in our room and then also in my kids' room so that they don't have any light that comes in. So when they start to get sleepy, that room is dark. And then the final thing is trying to go to bed and wake up at the same time every night. Like your body needs that ritual. And so I have a little wind down ritual for myself where I drink a glass of water. I read a book. We do the same for the kids. They have story hour. I start to ramp them down to sleep about an hour and a half before it's time to go to sleep. And then for myself, I ramp myself down probably an hour after that. And so those are things that have worked for me. They're science-based. The other thing I will say is drinking alcohol and eating too late are things that are very disruptive to sleep. And so I think it's trial and error for a lot of people, but I really recommend that if you're feeling groggy and achy and cranky and foggy, like look at what's happening with your sleep habits. A lot of people have apnea. And so they're not actually breathing at night. What about when you wake up? Many people have a lot mm. of their minds. I mean, many people have active minds. I can tell you that very often I'll wake up in the middle of the night 
And my mind just goes to wherever. And it's wide awake at two in the morning or three in the morning. Don't and, turn on the TV. Uh, Don't turn on the TV. Well, no, no. And honestly, do you ever wake up in the middle of the night? And if you do, and you find yourself not able to get back to sure. sleep, how do you get back to sleep? Sure. And I will say, you know, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, I would get, I called it my pandemic insomnia. I'd wake up at three in the morning and I would be wide awake. And so a couple of things that I did, one is I did not turn on all the lights. I would turn on a small light and I have a book at my nightstand. If I knew I couldn't go back to sleep, I would just read to myself very quietly. And sometimes that would put me back to sleep very quickly. Or I have like a sort of Google play and I would play ocean sounds. I love white noise. I love wave sounds, rain sounds. Some of those things will help you get back to sleep and things like deep breathing I think it's trial and error. Some people feel like they'll wake up at three and that's it. They're not going back to sleep. And I think the question is, how do you feel if you're up at three and you're then starting to work at say five, how do you feel at 10? And if you have the kind of schedule where you can take a short power nap, no more than 20 minutes, but a lot of people can't do that. And so I say, Try to figure out what works to get you back to sleep that doesn't involve opening up your phone and scrolling through Instagram or turning on the TV, all of which will really disrupt. And then the other thing I like to do is if your mind is just packed full of stuff, have a notebook by your bedside and write out what's in your head. Or if you journal, get it all out of your head because sometimes just the act of dumping that from your brain onto paper can allow your brain to relax a little bit. It's funny you say that. That's something I've been doing myself. My ritual before going to bed now is to write down all the things in my mind. And I'll say, I'm leaving these things here. I'm That's not right. taking these things out of this closet into the bedroom. I'm going to leave them here. And it seems to be working. A lot, certainly, that we can learn about sleep. It is a game changer, and it it's can also a be a wonderful thing. And I can tell you this personally, I've struggled with sleep and still do many times. It can be really challenging. Thank you for your advice on that. Yeah, thank you. And of course, you know, for some people, when it gets really bad, you can get a sleep study at your local university hospital or have your doctor refer you to one because oftentimes people have other things happening that's interrupting their sleep. So we all need to sleep more and we need to rest we need to rest. I'm still stuck in the seven to 10 hours. <laughs> I mean, I haven't had seven to 10 hours. I can't remember when. I mean, if it's well, you have six kids, Joe. That's why you haven't had seven to 10 hours. <laughs> well, there's, there's that. And there's also, you know, one thing I didn't hear you say, which I'm sure you follow, is that you have no animals in your room. There's no cats jumping on the bed, no dogs. And I know that can be disruptive sometimes. Very but, much. And sometimes kids are disruptive too, right? I mean, I think if you have a newborn, you're probably not going to get seven to 10 hours of sleep for a really long time, for example. But I will tell you, I have a six-year-old and every now and then she's creeping into the room. She will slide into bed, but she will also know that she has to be very quiet and still. So again, there's no perfection here. It happens to the best of us. And as long as she's not wiggling around, we're fine. <laughs> Well, like you said, there's no perfection. It's no perfection. trial and error. I think we're all just trying to do the best we can, but very exactly. good uh, insights. So thank you for that. Portia, so many insights in this podcast. Thank you so much. Any final wisdom you'd want to share with our listeners today? We've gleaned a lot when we were writing Kick Some Glass that continues to resonate for me. Thinking about career progression, I would share this. Optimize for learning. Optimize for experience and optimize for working with people who can teach you something you don't know. And I think that that is applicable 
whether you are a senior vice president or whether you're a senior associate. For me, that has been a real North Star and has been helping me think about my career choices and where I want to make an impact. Awesome. Well, great advice. Great podcast. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you being with me today. Thank you. It's been wonderful to be here with you. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, the Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us at the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.